Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the early 1980s. And fear is everywhere. The 1980s have been born in turmoil, strife. With threats of espionage and annihilation. Tensions heating up between the White House and the Kremlin. With Soviet invading forces in Afghanistan, neither the American people nor I will support sending an Olympic team to Moscow. And nerves are raw from a nightmare closer to home. The violence associated with drugs is spewing out all over America. In New York City alone, the violence and crime from drugs is out of control. The Big Apple in the 80s is rotten to the core. The city had nearly gone bankrupt. The subways were graffiti covered outside and inside. There were probably more than 200 felony crimes committed in the subways alone every week. Meanwhile, as the Bronx burns and crime soars, the good life goes on for the wealthiest in a slice of Manhattan known simply as Uptown. The elite of New York City were still enjoying themselves. Nothing interrupted their revels at all of the wonderful, fancy places. Places like the Metropolitan Opera House. The Met symbolizes New York at its most elegant. People dressed for the opera in tuxedos and ball gowns, and it was a high society. The Met is also the gathering spot for another elite, the best performing artists in the world. Among them, a 31-year-old violinist named Helen Hagnes Mintix. Helen had a ravishingly beautiful tone on the violin. I can still hear it in my memory. We played many, many, many concerts together. But it's not just Helen's musicianship that's striking. It's Helen herself. When I first saw Helen, I just saw this incredible ray of of light, not just in her face, but her long, white, blonde hair. I mean, I've really never, ever seen hair like that. Helen may look like she's from the same part of town as the Met's wealthiest patrons, 
but that's hardly the case. She grew up on a farm in Aldergrove, British Columbia. Chickens, horses, cows, the whole bit. Her musical talent showed up at a very, very early age, and her father drove her into Vancouver. But having just come off the farm and doing all her chores, she was afraid she might smell like manure. So she would just pour perfume on herself. Get the farm girl out of the farm. The farm girl wants to be good enough to get into the prestigious Juilliard Conservatory at New York's Lincoln Center. When she's 19, her dream comes true. She was thrilled, absolutely. Not just to get into the school, but to be surrounded by so many talented people. It was like a kid in a candy store. She went from this relatively unsophisticated farm background to being in the top level of freelance musicians in, in New York. She had also traveled quite a bit. Talent is also Helen's passport to the world. She often travels from her New York home to play at international concerts, from Cairo to Athens. One thing she always brings along with her violin, her sense of humor. We were hired by a Greek shipping company to do some concerts, and there was a costume party on, on the ship, and we made costumes out of all we could find, which was the bathroom towel and the shower curtain. That was kind of Helen at her most typical. During her travels, Helen finds another love besides music. When she's 27, she meets Giannis Mintix, a sculptor, at a summer arts camp in Canada. They really hit it off. I mean, from the day she met him, she just couldn't stop talking about him, thinking about him. She wanted him to come to New York for Christmas to visit her. And he said that he didn't have the money for the transportation. So she said, well, I'll pay for it. You have to come. And from then on, they were just inseparable. It isn't long before Helen and Giannis marry and settle into an apartment on the Upper West Side, just blocks away from her job at the Met. Even so, Giannis never fails to pick up an exhausted Helen after every performance. He did that because he wanted to make sure she got home safely and uh, he just wanted to see her. They just wanted to be together every second. For Helen, for anyone, the Met is an overwhelming place to work. Backstage, hundreds of workers like Vince Donahue toil on elaborate sets, choreographing lights and scenery. There was a brutality to it because the set pieces are humongous. You'd have 12 guys moving one piece, and if a guy stumbled or tripped, that piece isn't stopping. It keeps on going. It goes over your foot, over your hand. While the artists are the nobility of the Met, it takes years to be worthy of performing here. It's even harder to become a member of the blue-collar world backstage. The working class backstage at the Metropolitan Opera House was made up of members of a very strong union, a father-son union, and it's very hard to break into a union like that unless you're part of the family. And it seems as if head stagehand Marty Higgins has hired his whole family. He's got his wife's ex-husband working here, along with her son, Craig. Total nepotism. If your father wasn't in, you're not in. It was very tight-knit, and it's like very much from the boroughs. Staten Island, Queens, Bronx, you know, it wasn't a lot of Manhattan people. They were working-class people. The Met is a snapshot microcosm of the city. Part silk shirt, part blue collar. The Metropolitan Opera House 
really can give you a picture of the upstairs, downstairs nature of what was going on. In the front of the house, you had hundreds of people in fancy dress. Behind the stages, you had very lower middle class stagehands. Artists like Helen straddle both worlds. They're as classy as the audience, as hardworking as the stagehands, but they don't mix. The stagehands were one village. The musicians were another village. You know, they kept to themselves. Didn't seem to be a lot of respect for one another. Tonight, the Met is host to the Berlin Ballet, starring Soviet defectors Valery Panov and his wife, Galina Panova. It was a gala night. An audience of 3,700 people all turned out in their fancy best. As always, violinist Helen Mintix and the rest of the orchestra are also dressed for the occasion. Helen was dressed in her orchestra concert blacks, her long golden curls highlighted by a blue flower that she wore in her hair. Helen played in two ballets. The second was a pas de deux and Don Quixote. At about 9.28, the ballet Don Quixote ended. For the next 45 minutes, she was to be free because they were using tape music. At that point, she left her violin on the chair. Helen was due back to play the last ballet on the program, which was Miss Julie. At 10.19 p.m., as the orchestra takes its place for the final ballet, Helen's $20,000 violin is still on her chair, but she's nowhere in sight. This behavior was unthinkable for Helen. She was really a first-rate pro, extremely reliable. It was just unthinkable that she wouldn't show up. When the ballet ends at 11.15, there's still no sign of Helen. Her fellow orchestra members are getting worried. They were very concerned about what had happened to her. They began searching backstage. There was a call made to the house manager who phoned Helen's home. There was no answer because at that moment, her husband, Giannis, was waiting for her outside. When she didn't come out, the angst increased and a search expanded. At 4 a.m. on July 24th, Detective Jerry Giorgio arrives at the Met. The violinist has disappeared. Even though this is just a missing persons case, the Met is bracing for the worst. Jerry Giorgio is a member of the Homicide Task Force. They were a group of specialists, the best of the best of homicide detectives, who assisted in all cases within the borough. Working with Giorgio is Detective Mike Struck of the local precinct which covers the Met. They were an excellent fit for this case. You had both experience on, on Giorgio's part and relentless determination on Struck's part. The detectives order a room-by-room -room sweep of the entire building, but as they quickly learn, that's a tall order. The Metropolitan Opera House is one of the biggest mazes in the world. It was kind of scary. The detectives, they were finding themselves lost in this maze of corridors, catwalks, staircases. There were six floors going up, there were three floors going down. There were rooms full of props, costumes. You're working in the dark. It's very spooky. Traditionally, it's a spooky kind of environment. As the sun comes up after five hours of searching, the cops haven't found Helen or any trace of her. But then, at 8 a.m. A maintenance man came running to them, his face pale, he was shaken. 
He said he'd found something on the roof and nothing else was there. It was a pair of women's shoes. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. After finding a pair of shoes on the roof of the Metropolitan Opera House, NYPD detectives hope they'll find violinist Helen Mintix missing since last night. But a little after 9 a.m., their hopes turned dark. Hey, Giorgio, get over here. At this point, Jerry Giorgio, the detective, looks down the air shaft, and what he sees is just totally shocking. Halfway to the bottom, three stories down, there's a woman's body suspended on the platform. I got eyes on a body. She was naked face up on a steel sluice plate. On the stairs between the roof and Helen's body, investigators discover a bra and a pocketbook. When the detectives arrive at the third floor, they climb out to the sluice plate where Helen's body dangles. The body of Helen Hagnes Mintix looks like a broken doll. She's draped over a pipe. Her thighs have been broken and they are snapped off pointing in different directions. On closer examination of the body, detectives found that uh, Helen Hagnes Mintix had been gagged with a rag stuffed in her mouth. Her legs were tied with a rope and a piece of a garment. Her hands were tied behind her back. Struck and Giorgio send out teams of police to comb the path to the roof for clues. The stairs themselves, which are off limits to the public, give cops a possible lead. The police formed an opinion early on that Whoever did this had an intricate knowledge of the building. Meanwhile, fingerprint experts dust the Met's roof. 
An investigator from the crime scene unit found a full palm print on a pipe near that air shaft where Helen had been found. That's an important clue because if you get a palm print, the palm is, uh, is a signature. Detectives worry it could belong to someone from their own team. The detective's first thought was, oh, it's some careless cop who was up here, part of the search, and just leaned on that pipe. Still, they carefully lift the print and submit it with the other evidence. As investigators scour the Met for clues, Detective Giorgio interviews Helen's husband, Giannis. Giannis was absolutely incapacitated with grief. I remember very clearly his words, I'm getting my strength from a bottle. I mean, he was not an alcoholic by, by any means, but that's part of how he got through it. He, he just really drank a lot. But the cops need to see for themselves whether Yanis's behavior is out of grief or guilt. Perhaps he was consumed with jealousy while waiting night after night for her. Maybe he suspected something else was going on. You always look at a family member first, and then you go out from there. When they interviewed Yannick, what they wanted to know is when he last saw Helen, if he knew that she might be going someplace after the performance. He was very, very upset that he was considered a suspect. He just was incensed that that, that word could even be used anywhere near his name. It's not long before Detective Giorgio rules out Giannis as a suspect. Giannis was quickly cleared of suspicion because the killer had to know his way around the Met, that maze that detectives found. And clearly, he did not. He'd never been inside the building. Since police believe this was an inside job, they'll need to speak with everyone who's worked at the Met. Since January, there are about 2,600 people who had been in and out of the Met who might have access, who might be able to get backstage without any trouble, without being questioned or stopped. It's an overwhelming challenge. There's no way Struck and Giorgio can work this homicide within the first 48 hours it takes to solve most cases. They need all the help they can get. Within three hours after Helen's body is discovered, a team of detectives sets up shop in the atrium, the center of the Met's offices, to interview and take prints. The entire Met goes on lockdown. No one knew what was actually going on, but overnight, the atrium had 50 gold badge detectives move in, and they set up offices, and they started calling people down one by one. They have to interview everybody who was working backstage at the Met. There were makeup artists, costume people, stagehands, carpenters, electricians. They want to know if anybody missed any cues during the performance, if anybody was missing, if they were not where they should have been at a certain time. And of course, it wasn't long before the press got wind of this. A woman violinist playing in a performance of the visiting Berlin Ballet disappeared during an intermission. Everybody was reporting on this case. It was the biggest story in the city. And the headlines ran the gamut. I mean, it, it, it just went on and on. The old saying in journalism is, if it bleeds, it leads. And this certainly fit. I literally fell on the floor when I saw the headlines that my closest friend had been murdered at the Met. It just hits you in the pit of your stomach. You think of yourself at that age, your daughter at that age. You think about young women just going about their lives in what should be a safe place. She wasn't walking down a dark alley. She was at work at the Metropolitan Opera House. It's just so shocking. 
the police start to investigate Helen's personal and professional contacts beyond her husband, Giannis. Does she have any enemies, anybody who would want to do her in in such a violent, horrifying way? And they couldn't find anyone who had a bad word to say about this young woman. I hate to use the word sweet, it sounds so uh, trite, but it's really the, the word that describes her most. On the other hand, she was a smart cookie, very street smart. Is it a jilted lover? A rival musician who wanted her spot in the orchestra? A secret admirer? Was it some crazy person who just happened to wander into the opera house and get backstage somehow? I mean, it just ran the gamut of every theory you could possibly come up with. Wild speculations send a wave of panic running through the Met. Security increased dramatically at the Met. They didn't know who the killer was. They didn't know if the killer was in their midst. Crew members backstage all start looking suspiciously at one another. You're working next to a person who could have been a murderer. Who was it? Was it the guy next to you? You know, you never knew. But to the cops, it's Vincent Donahue who looks more like a killer than any of the others. The cops are looking closely at Vincent Donahue because he showed up the morning after the murder, came to work with a scratch on his face, a bloody scratch, and his head shaved, changing his appearance. Donahue's excuses also sound very fishy to the cops. I told them my wife at the time we were breaking up, and the night before we got into a knockdown, drag out fight and had scratches on my face. She told me the best thing about me was my hair, so I went in the bathroom and shaved my head. With Donahue looking more and more like a person of interest, the police will need to follow up with his wife and fellow crew members to check his story. Meanwhile, they place him under 24-hour surveillance. I ended up buying a bicycle so I could ride home without being followed. While Donahue is being watched, the cops learn there was someone else on Helen's path when they get a new lead from another violinist in the Met Orchestra named Alice Montoya. Police learned from Alice Montoya, a friend of Helen, that Helen's plan that night was during the recess to try to find Valerie Panov. Panov is one of the star dancers of the Berlin Ballet and a Russian defector, which raises more than a little suspicion. Maybe he was a spy. Maybe he was part of the KGB. It is more than possible that KGB killed those three people. In 1980, the Cold War is raging, and the Soviet Union is a source of fear and mystery in the U.S. This is the emergency broadcast system. We are under attack by conventional forces of the Russian army. And the last time anyone saw Helen, she was on her way to meet the Russian, a man already well-known to authorities since his defection from the USSR in 1974. And there are whispers from Russia that Panov had a violent temper. While the rumors swirl, another witness steps forward. An American-born ballerina with the Berlin Ballet named Laura Cutler says she saw Helen that night, just after intermission, at the stage-level elevator. I had never met her until I encountered her that evening. She was smiling, she was excited, and she radiated a wonderful spirit. Laura also confirms a link to Panov. Helen tells Laura she is looking for him. She had decided that she would try to approach Valery Panov because her husband wanted to sculpt him. When detectives question Panov about the meeting with Helen Mintix, his answer surprises them. Panov told them he had no contact with her, had no appointment with her, and knew nothing of her whereabouts that evening. Which fuels the mystery even more. 
two separate witnesses saw Helen looking for Panov. Could the Soviet defector be hiding something? The Panov tip and connection led to a whole new round of speculation that maybe he was part of the KGB, maybe there was a CIA connection. Who knows, but this is the kind of rumor that was going around. But Laura Cutler has another tip she shares with police. When she and Helen step onto the elevator together, there was another man that Laura had never seen. And Helen asked what floor she needed to go to to find Valery Panov in his dressing room. And I was still not very familiar with that huge backstage area. Very confusing when you don't know it well. According to Laura, the man spoke up. And the man said, oh, you need to go to the third floor. And so I thought, oh, okay, good. He knows the lay of the land and he'll help her get to where she needs to go. After Laura got off on her floor, the only two people in the elevator were Helen and the man. He was not terribly tall. He was a white man with a kind of medium longish tousled kind of hair. And he was wearing work clothes, kind of clothes that a stagehand might be wearing. He looked kind of raw, you know, ragged. He was not in a good mental state. Detectives get a sketch artist to draw a picture based on Laura's description. He was the hottest lead in the case because he was the last person known to have been with Helen, alive. Three days after Helen's murder, the autopsy report comes back, offering more clues to her death. The medical examiner during the autopsy determined from blood on the brain that she was alive when she was cast down that shaftway. In the uh, autopsy, they found a scratch on her neck which could have been made with a knife. Uh, she had bruises on her wrists where she had been tied. Part of the autopsy involved examination of the contents of the victim's stomach. This is a very normal procedure. They found remnants of a salad she had eaten, which allowed them to estimate the time of death. And from the process of digestion, they were able to estimate the death happened between 9.30 and 11. Exactly the time when Helen disappeared to around the end of the last ballet. Police now know for sure that Valery Panov had nothing to do with Helen's murder. And it was determined with plenty of witnesses that Panov was out front watching his wife Galina perform at that time. The cops now zero in on finding the man who was in the elevator with Helen. And they're sure he's right under their noses. What police are betting on is that if the man in the elevator was not the killer, that he could lead them to whoever was the killer. Three days after the disappearance and murder of Helen Mintix at the Metropolitan Opera House, police are still hunting for her killer. But now they've got something to go on after learning about a mysterious man who was in a backstage elevator with Helen. Police speculate that either the man in the elevator was the killer or that he could lead them to the real killer. And based on the sketch of him lead detectives Jerry Giorgio and Mike Strzok now have, they also figure he's one of the younger workers at the Met, under 40. Somebody who knows their way around the behind-the-scenes maze. So this allowed them to narrow their focus on a limited range of suspects. Still a huge range, but limited. As cops spend time questioning the stage crew, 
they learn that for all the Mets' glitter and glamour on stage, backstage can be as down and dirty as Times Square in the 80s. And crew members like Vince Donahue, Bobby Anderson, and Craig Crimmins are making the most of it. People were smoking pot. People were doing other stuff, you know? It was a drug-induced culture then. I'll speak for myself, you know? I was using drugs daily. I was using coke, I was smoking pot. You know, I know for a fact that Craig was as well. Craig Crimmins is one of the youngest stagehands and the stepson of the crew's boss, Marty Higgins. And he was the little kid everybody worried about, drinking too much or smoking too much or snorting too much because he was the darling of the stagehands. For the police, and the press that feeds off the sordid tales of the backstage debauchery that leak out of the Met. The stagehands are now the focus of the investigation. Some of them had a record. They came from backgrounds and neighborhoods where they may have been involved in petty crimes or, you know, worse. And Detective Struck and Giorgio still have their eye on Vince Donahue based on how he looked the day after the murder. Now he explained that he'd been in a fight with his wife but the cops were still very suspicious. A lot of people were accusing me of doing it. Some of the guys would joke, you know, because I had a shaved head. Yeah, he's the murderer. It was very, very scary. I thought, could this possibly happen? Could I possibly, because of this argument with my wife and shaving my head and having scars on my face, could I actually be convicted of a murder? And Vincent matches the profile, under 40, rough around the edges, and at the time, he had a full head of flyaway hair. He's even admitted to fighting with his wife. Could he somehow have transferred his rage towards her onto Helen? It's clear from the trail of clues she left on the trip to the roof and interviews with friends that she put up a fight. She was a strong girl, and she was not afraid of people, so I, it was very hard for me to understand how she could have been overpowered by someone. But when police cross-check with multiple crew members, they all confirm they saw Vince working his shift backstage at the very time the murder was occurring elsewhere. That puts one stagehand in the clear, but many more to go. The cops have been fingerprinting and questioning every stagehand for several weeks now. And while being printed, one guy raises a few eyebrows. He becomes extremely nervous, and his nervousness is just telegraphed straight to the detectives' brains as to something's wrong with this guy. It's Craig Crimmins, the 21-year-old stepson of head stagehand Marty Higgins. Looked like a very average guy. He had kind of a baby face. But when the detectives question Craig, he says he was working backstage at the time Helen disappeared. Crimmins said that he did not miss any cues. The police investigated and found from his boss and from some others that that was not true. I knew that Craig had missed his cues that night. I was the temporary boss on stage right, and he was working stage right. We didn't know where he went. We had to have someone do his job. So it was obvious that he was missing. And then the results come back from the palm print found on the roof. The palm print on the pipe on the roof comes back to Craig Crimmins. When detectives confront Crimmins with the fact that they know that he lied about not missing his cues, that his palm print was found on the pipe on the roof, 
Crimmins finally cracks a bit and says, okay, I was the guy in the elevator with the violinist. He told us that he had withheld that information because he was afraid that admitting that would tie him to the murder. The detectives have asked before, but now they ask Craig again. Where was he the night of July 23rd? And now Craig Crimmins changed his story again to say that he was asleep in the electrician's lounge at the time of the killing. Struck and Giorgio cross-checked Craig's latest alibi with other stagehands. The detectives found someone who said that he alone was asleep in that lounge and he never saw Crimmins in there during that time. So that turned out to be yet another lie that the police found that Crimmins had told them. The cops and assistant DA Charles Heffron in debate whether they have enough information to arrest Crimmins. We debated for several hours that night. The police wanted to arrest him on the theory that if we arrested him, he would immediately turn and confess. I took a more conservative view, because if he didn't confess, what would we have then? But the police are soon racing against the clock. On the Friday of Labor Day weekend, we got a tip that the Daily News that night was releasing an edition that had a headline identifying the chief suspect as a 21-year-old stagehand. And we knew that if that became public, it was likely that Crimmins or his family would get him a lawyer, which means we'd have no more access to him. So, Detective Jerry Giorgio drives up to the Bronx. At about 10 minutes to seven, out came Crimmins. And Jerry said, we just have a few more things to take up with you, Craig. Would you come with us? And he said, yes. Once at the station house, Detective Giorgio confronts Craig Crimmins with everything they have against him the palm print, the lie about not being in the elevator at first, the lie about sleeping in the electrician's lounge. Cornered, Craig confesses. At that point, he said, I killed that lady. And then he admitted what he did. His story starts between the matinee and evening performance that day. He and some friends went out for some beers. So he came back in a sodden condition. As always, Helen looked stunning that night, and Craig took note. What Crimmins tells the detectives is that he followed Helen into the elevator that night with the ballerina, and that after she got out, he said he said something rude to Helen, and she slapped him in the face, and this angered him. When she slapped him, she's basically saying, I'm in the orchestra, you're a backstage worker. You can't treat me that way. So when they got out of the elevator, he pulled a hammer. He attempts to rape her. He's not successful. And then he starts taking her up the stairs. She is sometimes a doorway away from thousands of people who could have rescued her, a thin doorway. Craig forces Helen to walk up six flights of stairs backstage, towards the roof. He got her to the roof. He took her shoes off because there were stones there and would make it hard for her to walk. Afraid she will escape and run for help, Craig decides to remove her clothes. He cut off her clothing with a knife that he had. He tied her hands behind her back. Charles Heffernan is the assistant DA who reads Craig's confession back to him on camera. I know I gagged her and I think I put one around her eyes. Did you get that answer? Yes. He tells her that he'll leave her there and he'll tell someone where she is after he ties her up. 
But as Crimmins starts to leave, Helen gets loose and tries to escape again. And that's when it happened. I went back and kicked her off. And did you get that answer? Yes. Just complete torment and terror. And then, after deciding that maybe she was strong and she was going to get loose, he just suddenly kicked her off the roof. With the confession, the police arrest Craig Crimmins. When Craig Crimmins goes on trial, the media has a field day all over again. But surprisingly, in many stories, it's Craig who's presented as the victim. Reporters are running around talking to friends of Craig Crimmins. He was a nice guy. Crimmy wouldn't do a thing like this. He could never have done this. He's our buddy. We accepted his alibi that he got drunk and fell asleep. You know, that would be more logical than he committed a murder. We just had to protect our own. We had to give him our support. Meanwhile, the real victim, Helen Mintix, is nearly forgotten. It's been over a year since Helen was murdered, and while her family in Canada continues to mourn her death in private, Craig Crimmins' family and friends are in the spotlight, eagerly defending their son, brother, and fellow stagehand. Craig could never hurt anybody, and I'll believe that till the day I die. And now the papers say the cops targeted Crimmins. One of the headlines read, Confession was a trick. That was in the New York Post. Now, the confession was a trick thing is a very common defense, and that was what his defense was going to be. The defense did a good job from their perspective of creating a climate in which the public was led to believe that Craig's will was overborne and that inappropriate tactics were used in getting the confession. But the jury sees something else. If you're at all confused, you have the right to ask me. Uh, say, stop, put that another way. I intentionally under-questioned him by over-Mirandizing him. I tried to give the Miranda warnings in the slowest, simplest way possible. I did that because I knew if that confession was received in court, a jury would evaluate it. And I didn't want to do anything to give the impression that he was not fairly dealt with. All of New York waits to see what the outcome will be. Would it be the baby-faced stagehand who won out in this, or some very slick detectives who know their stuff? After nine hours of deliberation, the jury comes back with a decision. Craig Crimmins is guilty of second-degree murder. He's sentenced to 20 years to life in prison, where he remains to this day. When he went to prison, he was in a cell with Mark David Chapman, John Lennon's killer. Crimmins said he didn't really enjoy the guy because he just sat around reading Catcher in the Rye. Theatergoers in the 1980s, terrified by Broadway's Phantom of the Opera, could calm themselves remembering it was only a play. But those haunted by the memories of the real-life Phantom who terrorized the Met aren't so fortunate. It still affects me. I just can't believe the brutality. I don't know what makes a person snap like that. It's something that will be on my mind every day for, for my life, for sure. The horror of it um, will, will always be there. I couldn't help but think, why her? Why not me? We were in the elevator together, the three of us. Who knows what she would have gone on to do? Her career was blossoming and her life was blossoming. And then it was just cut. And 
through the years, that has weighed on me more. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.